Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Surveillance with Jonathan Farrow and Tom Keane. The S&P 500 heading for a fourth straight week of gains, but a little bit of weakness emerging in the past few days, sparked, some would say, by jitters around tax cuts and whether the GOP has the votes to get this done next week. As far as futures are concerned this Friday morning, a little bit firmer, up five points on the S&P 500, positive 62 points on the Dow. In the bond market, it's as you were. Incredibly tight trading ranges through the year and over the last month as well. Somewhere in the 230s, we're up another basis point at 236 on a US 10-year. At the front end of the curve on a US 2-year, we are trading at 1.82%. Confidence that growth will improve and inflation will stay low, shared by most investors and central bankers alike going into 2018. And in the FX market, it's just a story of dollar weakness through the year and on the session as well, with one exception some dollar strength against the pound, even as European leaders vote to go to phase two of Brexit negotiations. The cable rate on the back foot, south of 134 at 133.92. We're down a third of 1%. For the year so far, though, it has been the pain trade of 2017. All the ingredients for a year of dollar strength, rate hikes, better growth, pushing through fiscal stimulus seemingly, and yet we grind towards one of the worst years for the greenback in a decade. To discuss, Bob Singe, Amherst Pierpont, global strategist. Bob, a man that has followed the FX market for decades. We have not seen a year like this for quite a while for the US dollar, yet we had the recipe and the ingredients for a year that should have been good. What happened? You know, I think the markets discounted a lot of this. Remember, the dollar had a, a huge run up from the election to the end of the year, and in fact, peaked right around year end. So, you know, when we do these annual comparisons, we will be comparing the dollar move this year to just about its peak at the end of December of, uh, of last year. Uh, and I think the market just got too bulled up um, on U.S. growth early in the year. They got too bulled up on, on uh, higher U.S. interest rates and too bulled up on the dollar. And so the, the year was really one of trying to digest those long positions. Um, and, and I think also... You know, one of the big disappointments, I think, if you look at the the year as a whole, is that the U.S. trade balance and therefore current account balance hasn't really improved all that much, even though we're almost at balance in the oil uh, trade balance for the U.S. So, you know, the U.S. trade balance in oil had gotten out to as wide as about $40 billion during the, the peak in oil prices. It's down, down to less than $5 billion. Yeah. Yet the total trade balance is as wide as it's ever been, which means we have records record deficit in the non-oil trade balance. So I think that there were some expectations that trade would improve because of uh, the U.S. improvement in the oil balance. There were expectations that, um, uh, you know, that the markets would would embrace um, these reforms in the U.S., they'd embrace growth. Uh, and I think a lot of it just got discounted in that big run-up in the dollar in November and December we've been digesting ever since. So if we think about excessive bullishness in the dollar, at the yep. end of 2016, and the response that we saw in 2017 of disappointment, you sort of look around and say, well, where's the greatest optimism right now in terms of market action and price action? 
It's Bitcoin. So you wonder whether Bitcoin <laughs> is going to be the disappointment of 2018. Maybe. We're going to spend a little bit more time talking about the fundamentals in this tax plan and where the GOP is at. I want to talk tactically just ahead of 2018. You mentioned some of the positioning going into this year. Everyone seemingly on the one side of the boat for dollar strength. And you were wondering where the marginal bar was going to come through, come from when net longs were so big. What does the positioning look like going into next year now, Bob? You know, the market's a bit a bit underweighted on dollar. It's, a, I think, a little bit overweighted on the euro, overweight on the euro. But I, I don't think the positions are as extreme as we've seen because we just haven't seen the results this year in currency trading. We haven't seen the results in, in trading in, in a lot of the commodity markets. So I don't think going into the end of the year, we have big, big positioning. But if we do, um, I, I think the one that's been embraced is euro strength because of the strength of the well, economy and that filtering through. You didn't mention that you had such great health a year into the year happened about October 20th where you packed it. And I'm sure Bob Sinch with us with Amherst. Uh, Bloomberg Surveillance this morning. Good morning. Brought to you by Invesco. Invesco dedicated to delivering an investment experience that can help you get more out of life. Learn more at Invesco.com slash more out of life. What's the number one mistake, Bob Sinch, that people make when they bet on the dollar? We say the dollar, but you got to do the dollar against something else to make any money. What's the rookie mistake in a belief on dollars stronger, or for that matter, dollar weaker. You know, I think that that we've been in a in a in an exchange rate market that's been dominated by capital flows for for a couple of decades now. And one thing that I think did come through in 2017 um, is that current account balances still matter. And so, big current account surplus in Japan, big current account surplus in the eurozone; those currencies held up. Uh, pretty well during the year. And as I said, big current account deficit in the U.S. that yeah. requires continuing capital inflows into the U.S. If that's going to happen in 2018, and I think it will, I think it's not going to be because U.S. short-term rates go up. I think it's going to, it'll be driven by long-term U.S. rates going higher. So I think that the dollar's fortunes in 2018 are similar to the bond market's fortunes, obviously inversely related to the bond market fortune, fortunes. And, and I think one of the key issues will be to see whether U.S. bond yields rise as the Fed gets out of the way um, in terms of beginning to, to sell bonds at the same time that deficit projections get uh, get moved higher. Uh, and the question is, will that create some some congestion in the bond yeah. market? Well, Bob, so what we've got to think about then is structural forces reasserting themselves. That means stronger euro, stronger Swissy, stronger yen, weaker pound, and weaker dollar. Is that how we've got to think about G10 next year? Well, I think that's what drove this year. I think that the markets were all bulled up on the cyclical story at the right. end of 2016. And when the cyclical story didn't continue to drive those capital flows, we went back to um, you know, the underlying current account balances. And I think that's what helped the yen and the euro this year. Uh, the question will become, do those capital flows become bigger again in 2018? And I think the driver of that is not short-term rates in the Fed. I think the driver of that is bond yields. And so it, it's really dependent upon bond yields. We think bond yields are going higher in eighteen in the uh, 2018 in the U.S. Well, to me, this is absolutely fascinating. And as you say, there's almost a zeitgeist year in, which is the theme for next year. Do they ever work out? Does the beliefs that John and I read about <laughs> in the every FX day, market typically no? Yeah, so. I was going to say. I mean, the dollar is going to be stronger. Trump won. U.S. ascended. That worked out. 
But right now, whatever you read across all of the literature, are you sitting there as a grizzled Bob Singe going, are you guys kidding me? Yeah, I mean, I think that that there is some pressure on people who are deeply involved in the business yeah. to come up with these ideas for the year. You know, uh, the, the Trump trade, the higher U.S. interest rates, fiscal stimulus, that all did drive the dollar. It drove it for eight weeks in November and <laughs> December of 2016. Uh, and the problem is, by that time, okay. everybody was on the trade, in the position. Bob, we don't care. Here's what we care about. Farrow's so large. John Farrow is now so large at Bloomberg that his entire compensation package is hedged. The problem is, <laughs> John's going back to London for the holidays Let me tell to you. see mom You know, and the rest of it. Can, what sterling level does he need to live large in the United Kingdom in the next two weeks? You know, I think he's doing okay at uh, 130 to 135. I'm, I don't think he's an unhappy here, camper. Full disclosure here, funded in dollars and sailing absolutely naked with no hedges whatsoever. <laughs> okay? So as, I'm going, so, as, so as I'm going back into the UK, we're going pure unhedged dollars back into sterling. You know, the other issue is when Jonathan goes home, does he actually pay for anything? Oh, that's does, true. He you is. know, I mean, everybody's going to be paying for him. And can and we so also I'm say not sure it's an spot issue. price on the Bloomberg, as I see it, is not I, spot price at the terminal at JFK I, when I, I go through travel. He was X. walking down Threadneedle Street down towards our new office, and they like, they bow, they do the head, t the tap thing <laughs> from medieval England when he walks by. What's your call on Sterling for next year? Uh, boring. You killed it this year, full disclosure. Yeah, we had it was okay. I, I think it's relatively boring. Um, you know, one of the things that I think may surprise us in 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 the in 2018 is the Brexit negotiations. I don't think they're going to be as difficult for the UK uh, on a relative basis as they were in phase one. Look, in phase one, the the EU leadership had very little to give up. And this was primarily about how much money the UK was going to pay to get out of the deal. And so I think that that the EU leaders didn't have a lot of uh, disagreement. I come back to the fact that that the EU uh, has is a major exporter to the UK. Yeah. And that creates a lot more strength for the UK in the trade negotiations than people generally perceive. Yeah. Bob Sinch, Amherst Pierpont Global Strategist. Gideon Rose with us with a really interesting and emotional uh, issue of foreign affairs, the undead past, with two actual plaques from Auschwitz. I mean, it's very, very, very uh, emotional cover. John Farrell, you look through it and you go to the challenges of the Middle East that are yeah. spoken of within the undead past. Gideon, I'm thinking about the United States State Department in the era of the reluctant hegemon and what that means for the Middle East. So basically there's a big picture and the details. The big picture is we're getting a preview of what a post-American world would look like. Um, the Essentially the United States, it's almost like we're in the Iliad and we're the Greeks and the United States is Achilles. And essentially we're sulking in our tent. We've walked off the battlefield and 
the enemy, the Trojans, are winning because we're basically not fighting. And the question now is, you have in Saudi Arabia interesting developments where there's both internal reform, but also a regional uh, 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 a regional hegemon trying to be born. You have Iran doing the same thing in reverse from the north in the Gulf. You have Syria in which we've not only defeated ISIS on one hand, but also the Russians have basically helped Assad win. So you're entering a new phase in Syria. And all this is playing out with essentially the U.S. completely distracted, having no essential State Department, no diplomatic apparatus, uh, and a half-hearted attempt to do a peace deal, but with things like the move of the embassy to Jerusalem, there's no possible way you're going to get a peace deal. So essentially, the Middle East is working on its own dynamics going forward in interesting ways with stuff happening, and the United States is sort of watching from the sidelines, and nobody is quite sure just how long the unraveling will continue, and if and when the U.S. will ever come back to the diplomatic game. Gideon, we have an emerging alliance as this is happening, one that many years ago people might not have expected, an emerging alliance between Saudi Arabia and Israel, with the bond, the glue keeping those two together, a will, an effort, the objective to to isolate Iran. How is this going to evolve in the coming year? Well, I mean, essentially... uh you have guard, you know, guardians of the old order that are essentially happy with the status quo, uh, Israel and Saudi Arabia, which actually are strong in their position and actually uh, care about it. And Iran, which is trying to make inroads and essentially counter them with its own allies. So you're having kind of regional teams pick sides. Uh, and what the Saudis and the uh, uh, Israelis are happy about with this administration is they felt the Obama administration was almost moving to be neutral between them and the Saudis. And now they're happy that the Trump administration is backing them. But the question in the long run is Israel and Saudi Arabia are not enough to make a Middle East policy with. And they're actually no. uh, uh, going to be you need to have some way of bringing Iran into the negotiations and stabilizing the situation in some way. And the question of what happens with the future of the Iran nuclear deal is actually crucial and interesting. So Gideon, as you think about the Middle East right now, there are several hotspots, Yemen, Lebanon emerging so in, in the last couple of months, much more so, and Syria as well. As you look at this evolving relationship between the Saudis, Israel, and their uh, opposition to Iran, which region, which area of the Middle East you're most concerned about things bubbling over? Well, Syria is always has been in the last several years the uh, uh, the potential for regional conflagration. Um, now we're moving into an interesting area there because we're not quite sure what's going to happen uh, with a post-ISIS but strengthened Assad regime and what will the future of Syria look like. Uh, that has potential. Yemen's a terrible tragedy, but I don't see it blowing up. The really interesting thing is the Saudi-Iranian relationship. And also, frankly, it would be interesting to see if there are any repercussions between what happens in in uh, the uh, American domestic political situation and the Middle Eastern situation because uh, the, the the Saudis uh, are close allies of the Trump administration as well as the Israelis. And if the Trump administration finds itself in real rest- uh, troubles in 2018, that could be a problematic for mm-hmm. Middle Eastern diplomacy. Within Middle Eastern diplomacy, and we all have, I mean, literally, folks, the evening of September 11th, I picked up 800 pages of Albert Harani in his one volume, The History of the Arab People. That's a true story. I picked it up that evening and ran through it in about three months, two months, maybe. We all have our legacy knowledge of the Middle East, Gideon Rose. Those books are old news. What's the new book being written now? What's what's the, the zeitgeist that you would recommend we learn about, about this new 
Middle East? It's a fascinating question. Basically, when you're looking at the Middle East, you always have to remember the past because you won't understand the problems and the motivations of the different actors, but you have to get past and transcend the past so that actually you can focus on the future. I think the question of whether we can actually create some kind of balance between the Saudis and the Iranians in which their regional rivalry can can be stabilized without destroying the region, uh, where they can compete in a structure that for regional influence that is not destructive to everything around it, that will be the key question. I've had the privilege of meeting three of Faisal's immediate and direct descendants. One, I believe, is maybe a brother. I'll be honest, I can't remember. And it's completely authentic, tribal, aristocratic, royal, Middle East heritage. And we all were weaned on Lawrence of Arabia and all of our false mythologies. This new guy is trying to get them away from that. How do you do that within a tribal legacy? I, I, I find it fascinating. So what's happening with uh, Mohammed bin Salman in Saudi Arabia, fantastic reform uh, uh, moves, but where it's actually going, is this just an increased play for personal power and control? And what does he want to do with the power when he has it? Does he want to liberalize Saudi Arabia? Are we talking, look at the, what's going to happen with energy markets, what's happen with religious extremism and the control there and foreign policy? It's actually really interesting because he's trying to, it seems like he's trying to do interesting things to Domestically, but he's also been obstreperous on foreign policy and the Yemen side of things has not worked well at all. So the what will happen with Mohammed bin Salman's Saudi Arabia going forward is a really interesting question. Some people would argue, Gideon, that this is a power grab under the veil of reform and there are still significant doubts whether he can really contain Wahhabism in Saudi Arabia. Can he really do that? When he talks about a moderate Islam, I don't think of Wahhabism as that. Uh, look, it, any of these religions has uh, variants that can be more militant or more pacific, and there's plenty of room for political authorities uh, in a place like Saudi Arabia to shade the coverage and interpretation into various kinds of quiescence or not, religious-wise. So if he wanted to do some reform, he could, but we just don't know, and one of the things we'll all be watching is to see not just how the power play works out internally, but what the fruits of it are in terms of what does he do with the power position that he has consolidated. So, Gideon, what does success look like for MBS? Success would look like maintaining uh, domestic power, uh, having sent a clear message that he won't tolerate opposition uh, to his policies, and then some kind of attempt to gradually reform to be able to take the kingdom's strengths, stabilize it, and move it forward into the 21st century with a different kind of model that's more adapted to the future of the Middle East, uh, energy-wise, socially, religiously, etc. That's a big challenge, and... Uh, <clears throat> We don't know whether he can pull it off. Final, final question. This has been wonderful, Gideon Rose. What's your challenge with foreign affairs? Folks, I'm going to make this simple. John, help me here because I don't know if I have the pricing right. It's a price of two Manhattans. Okay. Maybe it's a price of two Gibsons. Our, our challenge I, is pretty simple, actually. Okay. We are essentially shock troops of the Enlightenment. Our goal is simply to apply reason to public policy for the public benefit, mm -hmm. to provide a forum for serious discussion of real issues. And this whole question of fake news, the whole question of trying to undermine right. standards of truth, <clears throat> that's the biggest single challenge because it doesn't matter about which political side you're on. There should be, as, as Dan, Pat Moynihan used to say, you can have the right to your own opinions, but not your own facts. And With, that's the biggest challenge we're in is that now facts and okay. logic themselves are creating a partisan environment. On behalf of all of foreign affairs and Council on Foreign Relations, what's the print subscription dynamic right now? How'd you do this year? Uh, we're actually doing pretty well. We're up yeah. over a couple hundred thousand and you could basically subscribe any way you want. Go to foreignaffairs.com okay. and 
Uh, we're we're seeing pitch. a resurgence of okay. journalism. Congratulations, Let, let me give you the real sales job here, folks. The print subscription has adult larger font. You can actually read the damn thing. Two, you get a subscription for foreign affairs for the mouthy brat you have at home who's an undergraduate somewhere. You get on the subscription and you say, you don't get the daily. Pharaoh, you get a daily or a weekly <laughs> You do allowance. understand that that kind of magazine is going to make the mouthy brat in the family even mouthier. It is. That's Noah. true. But you get on the subscription and you say you must read one article or you don't get the allowance to go to Florida for winter break. Hopefully it's not spinach and hopefully they're already reading it online and using it for their debate uh, teams and other kinds of preparation. But we're all in this together. You're doing the digital and you're doing the prudential. Foreign Affairs Magazine, here endeth my sales pitch. Joe Biden's in it. Some really interesting cross-political analysis, the undead past. John Farrell, what's the one thing you see on the data screen here? I just see a weaker dollar that's just struggling to get a bid, not just today, but throughout the whole of 2017, Tom. And I know yeah. we've talked about this a lot in the last couple of days, but really as we round out the year and look ahead to 2018, and with a prestigious guest next to us as well, that's what yeah, I'm thinking okay. about. What went wrong with the call for a stronger dollar this year? Should we bring him in? I bring him in. I All drag right. Jens Nordvig. <laughs> let's, get, let's get him involved. Yeah. I don't know what's wrong with Tom Keane this morning. Yeah. I'm worried about Steelers Patriots. <laughs> Leave me alone. Jens Nordvig, Exante Data CEO and founder. Jens, it's always great to catch up with you. Tax cuts are set to go through. Fiscal stimulus is set to happen. GDP is accelerating. Rate hikes are going to continue through this year, through next year. What's the dollar doing down here? Well, so I think uh, when when you look at the dollar, it tends to move in cycles. And we had a really big dollar strengthening cycle from the summer of 2014 to January this year, depending on how you count it. And once you've had one of these really big moves, it becomes hard to just to sustain the gains. And you need to have, like, continuously good news. And um, this year, we, we've had a lot of good news, but a lot of it was priced in. And... Early in the year, uh, Trump arguably started to truck the currency down. So I think that was a part of the turning point. Another really important part of the turning point was that we started to have much better global growth, right? Yeah. So it's always very tempting to sort of be, okay, we, we want to trade the dollars. Let, look, let's look at U.S. fundamentals. But FX is always a relative game. And we've had a lot better growth. Like, just let me emphasize one point from the ECB press conference last year, uh, yesterday. The ECB now projects essentially 2.5% growth for 2018. That's the same as the United States. <laughs> and uh, and they have no population growth. So in, in, in GDP per capita terms, it's it's growing faster than the United States, even though the United States has to do fiscal stimulus, i.e. tax cuts, to get there. Yeah. It's kind of interesting. Yet we have a deposit rate in Europe at negative 40 basis I've points. I've noticed, I've noticed. Uh, and at the front end <laughs> in the United States, we continue to grind higher. Yeah. I'm trying to reconcile those two things, Jens. Yeah. Can you help me? This is really good news for me because I have to make a living out of predicting currencies. And if it was easy, then <laughs> I wouldn't have a job. So this, this year has been really interesting, right? Because we've had this huge divergence between the signal from interest rates and what currencies have actually done yeah so i think there's been some really important flow effects that has pushed the euro yeah. higher and uh, <clears throat> i think that can continue bob cinch identified this an hour ago let's go into this there's two drivers of fx flows money sloshing around and am i right real interest rates inflation adjusted interest rates and their expectation is that right 
versus present interest rates. Now you're really going into a uh, 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 almost uh, religious debate about I'm on, what interest I'm on rates. The, I'm on the edge of Michael. <laughs> help me here. I'm on the edge of Michael Rosenberg. Typically, I'm channeling in, the great in Michael FX Rosenberg. In FX 101, Jens, you'd be thinking about rate differentials at front end. Yeah, that, that well, would be FX 101. Uh, and that's right. Um, if if you're looking at a emerging market country, okay. I always look at real interest rates. But for G10 countries, I, I think normal is more okay. important. Okay, chapter eight of your wonderful, important, and I might point out at the time, courageous book, pounding the European society to get their act together. Chapter eight, where's the growth, the cost of deflation? Yeah. Can you say now your book is old and that Europe is on a new regime and you need to write a new book? about a European GDP that may be bigger than the U.S. GDP? Yeah, so that, that book came out in 2013, and I think uh, a lot of things have changed. There's a fair few chapters I would like to add. There's the refugee crisis that was not in the book. And now we actually seem to have come through in a way where after 10 years, pretty much, with no growth at you, all. Okay, let me help you with the title here, and I need a royalty on this. Are you going to write... <laughs> The rise of the euro. <laughs> well, the the first thing I have to do is I have to get approval from my wife to write another book because it takes a little. Oh, I thought of you time. needed to get a, an <laughs> no, approval no, no. from Mrs. Nordvig for me to get a royalty. Excuse me. <laughs> he needs an approval for both. Is that what we face though? <laughs> a, a rising euro, a rising Europe. Is the excitement justified, Jens? I do. So I was uh, I was just speaking with uh, Lisa Abramos and Alex Steele this morning where we touched on this topic. And the one uh, chart I actually just tweeted out now is about the public support for the euro. So the whole thesis in the book that I wrote back in 2013 was that the project was very, very shaky if public support was going down. And now we're actually having a turning point in the public support. So this is really important. Uh, because it means that the sort of forces in Europe that were ready to to embrace a breakup are potentially having a, a less less momentum, and that that could keep the thing together. So when we think about political forces reasserting themselves in 2018, I think most people think instantly they think Italy Absolutely. and what's going to happen with the Italian election and how that may kind of throw this whole this whole happy talk around Europe off course. Will yeah. it? So this, this is why I watch these opinion polls uh, very, very carefully, right? Because if you look at the different parties in, in Italy, there are right-wing parties that are anti-Europe and there are left-wing parties that are anti-Europe. But they also look at opinion polls. If they can see it's actually not that popular to be anti-Euro, they're going to tone down the rhetoric. And we learn in France it's not in France. So yeah. is it in Italy? So in Italy has always been the big public uh, problem country in that support for the euro is kind of 50-50, right? So it makes a big difference whether the 10% is going to swing 60% against it or 60% in favor of it. Just because of time, I want to go over to Asia. Uh, my recollection, I could be wrong on this, correct me, please, is at the beginning of the year, there was almost a partition of euro-US transatlantic dynamics and then a whole other beast called Asia DXY or Asia Japan, whatever that dynamic is. Is dollar dynamics separate with Europe and then over here Asia, or are they more of a converging set of dynamics? Well, so I think you're making a really good point because there's some flow dynamics that are very Asia-specific. Yes. There's the capital flight that has been happening out of China <clears throat> up until early this mm -hmm. year, but stopped for various reasons we go into. Right. Then there's also <clears throat> a country like Korea, another very important country in Asia, they have essentially stopped intervening in their currency market this year. That allows the currency to go to a different level than we've seen in the past. Okay. The ones had a great year. 
Well, I, I want to rip the script up right now. And if you don't want to answer this, that's okay. Without question, on this Friday in December, the Bitcoin focus is on the frenzy in Korea. With your work at Goldman Sachs, your work at Nomura, the beautiful book you put out, The Fall of the Euro, what do you see is the trading frenzy of China, Japan, and Korea over this thing called Bitcoin? You've lived that psychology. You've traveled there a million times. How do you distill the, the Bitcoin frenzy that we see within uh, the Pacific Rim? Well, so they definitely have a, a gambling culture that is different from what we know here. And you can see that on the exchanges for, for Bitcoin in Asia. But I would add one more thing. So there's more and more people who are serious investors that have managed institutional money over the last couple of decades that are telling me we're closing down our hedge fund maybe multi-billion dollar hedge fund, our focus going forward is going to be cryptocurrencies. It's stunning. It's not just a retail phenomenon. There's going to be an institutional chapter to this okay, cryptomania. Okay, but this is so too important. Are they going to, come on, the long, short cryptocurrency fund, are they going there because they want to? Or are they going there because they think that's the only alpha creating game in town to make two and 20? It's probably a mix, but I really think there are serious people who are fundamental believers in this. You can maybe call them religious about it, but yeah. there are smart people who have conviction in this space. And sometimes when I sit down with these people who I've known for years and hear what they say about it, I'm I'm surprised uh, how broad-based this is and, and, and how it's merging okay. into the institutional space now. I'm not surprised the funds are closed, and I'm surprised they're going into cryptos. Global macro just got killed by central banks, Tom, uh, but, over the last so few years. One data point, even people who have been successful, been successful in macro, yeah. are doing it. It's amazing. That's interesting. Yeah. Now, that's uh, interesting. Interview of the week, Howard Ward, uh, Gamco, and Gabelli up 29% uh, this year, and he's not making 2 and 20. I speak to Mario Gabelli on television today around 12 noonish, and yes, we will speak about the media, Fox and Disney, with Mr. Gabelli as well. Jens Nordvik, thank you so much. Greatly Greatly appreciate your wisdom. It is good to catch up with Sonny Kapoor. He's with uh, Sonny Kapoor. He's with Redefine. But far more than that, he takes a very broad a holistic view of a Europe uh, that's really sort of in ascendancy. Sony, uh, good morning. Did you did you ever think you would see forecasts of European real GDP larger than American? Um, yes. Even at the depth of the European crisis, I never lost my faith in the EU's ability uh, to get together and be resilient. Uh, part of it, of course, is uh, simply a question of bouncing back. The sad reality is that even with the relatively optimistic forecast that we see today, many European countries, especially in the Eurozone, will still have GDPs that are lower than they, would, than they were back in 2007 and 2008. Uh, so, yes, it looks good on a relative basis, 
in a world that is otherwise uh, confronted with slowing growth in rich economies, but we have had a lost decade in Europe. Sony, we've had a lost decade in Europe, arguably because there was a man called Trichet that ran the ECB, and then we got a man called Draghi that bailed everything out. Is this President Draghi's recovery, or is this Europe's recovery driven by politicians that got their act together? Well, I think part of it is simply, again, the question of bouncing back. At some point, real economic activity had to pick up. But yes, you are right that Trichet dealt a bad blow at the start by raising interest rates prematurely, by taking a divergent view on monetary policy compared to what the Fed and the Bank of England were doing. And that probably cost Europe three or four years of much slower growth and a deeper recession than we would have needed to have had. And yes, Draghi has contributed uh, to restoring confidence, particularly to taking away the possibility of a breakup of the Eurozone that haunted investment and economic activity in Europe for several years. But uh, some of this is simply the result of the asset price inflation we are seeing and may actually be temporary rather than real. Time will tell. One of the things we can do with you, and this goes, of course, to your advice to the Norwegian government, your work with OECD and IMF, we got like eight ways to go here, but in the time that we've got left, Sony, both John and I are, to be kind, surprised that Germany can't get its act together. I guess the election is old news, but have you been surprised by the struggle to get to a 2018 coalition? Well, not really, because there has been a precedent of the junior party in grand coalitions across Europe having to pay a significant electoral cost. And this time, after several such years and coalitions of being the junior partner, the SPD decided that enough was enough. And the mathematics simply didn't work. But we have to remember, and this is very important, that Germany is a federal economy with most key critical economic decision-making actually not lying with the federal government. So in that sense, Germany can, as opposed to France and the UK, which are far more centralized, be afford, uh, afford to be without a federal government, without any serious economic cost for far longer uh, than these other centralized economies. And the example of Belgium, which set the record uh, for not having a government while the economy did quite well, uh, is perhaps the best comparison. Like Germany, Belgium itself has multiple levels of government. The federal government in Belgium is only responsible for some small decisions rather than being all important. Sonny, thank you so much. Nice to catch up. Perhaps we'll see you at Davos. Sonny Kapoor uh, is Managing Director for Redefine uh, with a good perspective on uh, Europe. Um, yeah, Jen, I, I just, I, it is one of the great surprises of the year. I just thought a coalition would be doable in Germany. I, I think everyone just, thought, everyone just thought smooth sailing for yeah. Chancellor Angela Merkel. That probably was the political yeah. surprise this year, though, as Sonny Kapoor points out, Tom, really the lesson yeah. is that you don't really need a government sometimes in Europe um, for things to be okay. Yeah. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, 
or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. 